Good morning, Citizens Church. So good to have us together this morning, however we're gathering, um, whether you're on phones or TVs or however you're joining in with us. Just happy to have us together. Uh, you guys don't realize this, but Heather's so moved, Megan and I. Uh, these, this worship set just dropped in our inbox unannounced. Uh, Megan got the week off. We are so moved, Heather. Just so thankful. Thank you. Uh, thank you, Donna, for reading the, the kid's story this week. Uh, I have a short preface. I'm going to try and keep it as short as I can. Uh, you may notice I've been pretty silent uh, about the events on the 6th last week. Uh, just the protest at the Capitol that turned into a riot, turned into a mob. Uh, I really struggled with that, and I'm sure all of us have struggled in different ways with, with that just totally insane event. Um, in 2021, to just sort of, what, cap off 2020? I doubt it. Uh, just, just this idea that uh, this, this vision of seeing where we are as a nation. Um, so real and also so symbolic in a way, and so devastating. Uh, people may have had some trauma related to that, just, just with what's going on. Certainly we all have a sense of fear that something like that rips away your security. I've heard people compare this kind of to a 9-11 type of moment for them where just a sense of safety and security is just rattled. So I just wanted to take a minute and address it directly. I don't want to try and weave it in to the sermon today too much. I just, if the Spirit makes those connections, great. But here's what I want to say. I want to say that I've spent a lot of time before this moment. That I don't take this lightly to do a direct address about something. Uh, I've asked God for a lot of wisdom. I've done a lot of listening. I have run the gamut probably like many of you, from reactionary fear that turned into anger, that turned into condemnation, that turned into self-righteousness. And I let all of those waves pass over me as quietly as I could in conversations with close friends, just hammering out, God, where are you speaking to the church in this moment? Um, Elijah brought up a good point. I asked, what is the role of the church in this moment? He says, the role of the church is always the same. And he's right. And so the question is, what particularly, what prophetically, what, what must we hear specifically when applying the gospel to this moment? God, what would you have us as a church do and stand on? And I think of Martin Luther King Jr. had a sermon uh, in, that he shared uh, in the civil rights era, of course. And in this time, a lot of white Southern preachers were staking their claim on preaching the gospel. And Martin Luther King Jr. was preaching the sermon and he was calling out, he was saying, it's, it's not that it's a problem to stake your claim in the gospel, but sometimes staking your claim in the gospel is avoiding speaking to the truth of the moment in which the gospel must, is calling out to you to be prophetically applied with particular guidance. And so he had choice words, I'm sure, for the black preachers too. I'm sure he had ways to galvanize everybody under the one true king. But he was specifically calling for these white preachers to speak directly against racism. Don't avoid it. Don't cave into the fear that has you run from that. Face it and let come what may. 
Now, we as a, as a church have no business holding non-Christians to standards they don't hold themselves to. So to everyone that's part of that riot, who will never know, that's not a Christian, I can't hold them to a code of conduct that I can hold the church to, but I can, and we must, as Christians, hold other Christians to a unified code of conduct, to a Christian ethic. And I think that's what I'm particularly rattled by, is that the church, in so many symbols, in so many ways, flagrantly showed their hypocrisy and sullied the witness of Jesus through violence, through anger and hatred and rage. So I'm still working out all the finer points. I believe there, there, is, there is a way that just as a Christian can join, uh, they're not the same thing, but as a Christian could join a protest against injustice of racism against black and brown people, that they could join at a protest at the Capitol right now against the injustices of our government, against the shalom of God, whether that's against the legalized death of unborn babies, whether that's against religious liberties. There are reasons that one could feel moved to protest that in a change of our presidency. But there is no way that we can maintain a Christian anchoring in this time, if we do not cry out and speak against the validity of some of the things that were most prominent and most visible last week on the 6th. And I think the things we have to speak about are made clear uh, by Russell Moore with the Ethics and Religious Liberties Commission. This is top brass of the Southern Baptist Commission. This is a conservative guy, by the way where he says this, a start, a small but necessary start is for the church to say clearly, conspiracy theories and insurrections and riots and murders and incitements are, and incitement are out of step with the word of God. And we will not, not one of us, spend one second hemming and hawing about that. I'm trying to try and keep this short, but I think as a Christian church, we have to speak against the validity of, we have to decry racism of any form, white supremacy endorsed by symbols such as the Confederate flag, Christian nationalism, which conflates the destiny of our nation with the destiny of the church. Those two things are not the same thing. Nostalgia to galvanize people, flags that said, make America godly again. We don't look back to our fallen history as a thing to return to. We look forward to the coming of Jesus to make all things new. We should decry fear and anxiety, but we should do it with compassion. We should not be condemning fear and anxiety when we ourselves carry it in our own bodies. But we should, we should decry it. We should say there is no fear in love. That acting out of fear is not an appropriate response. Jesus was not an ends justify the means kind of guy. He just wasn't. He had zealots in his discipleship that wanted to rage out and bring about a new order. He had guys in the pocket of the oppressed who were milking it for all it was worth. And he called them all to let go of those things and give up those means to their own ends, to their own power, trips and journeys and visions of the good life, of what should be. And he said, not if, 
It goes against the way of Jesus. So I have in my heart mostly been just sitting in a sense and a spirit of deep repentance, calling out to God and saying, have mercy on our nation. Call me to say where I need to say. Call me to love and have compassion where I need to have that. Give me hope. This is not the end. And I ask for all of us to do the same. Let's pray. God, today we come as Christians who must be challenged, who must see the world and know it by your light because you are the light of the world. God, make us more confident in those things. Make us more confident in those truths and make us more confident in the grace of how you would have us act in this time so that both in the things we stand on and the things we stand against, we can look like you, Jesus, sinless, not guilty of any solid witness. God, I pray that you would speak specifically to our hearts where you are training us to listen and have ears to hear and eyes to see in you. May you relax us right now. May you give us peace that you will bring us through this time, God. In Jesus' name, amen. So open your Bibles to John chapter 9 with me. John chapter 9. We're going to teach through our series in John 9 today, and we're just going to jump right in to the text. I just want you to keep an eye out for two things as we're doing so. One, just this, this word honesty. I want you to follow the honesty of the man born blind. And secondly, to underscore this idea that in this text, more than anything else, we see Jesus as a healer, as one who comes to heal and let that soak into your bones. Verse one, as Jesus passed by, he saw a man blind from birth and his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Jesus answered, it was not that this man sinned or his parents, but the work of God might be displayed in him. We must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. Night is coming when no one can work. As long as I am in the world, I'm the light of the world. Having said these things, he spit on the ground and made mud with saliva. Then he anointed the man's eyes with mud and said to him, Go, wash in the pool of Siloam, which means sent. So he went and washed and came back seeing. The neighbors and those who had seen him before as a beggar were saying, Is this not the man who used to sit and beg? Some said, it is he. Others said, nobody looks a lot like him. He kept saying, I am the man. So they said to him, then how were your eyes opened? He answered, the man called Jesus made mud and anointed my eyes and said to me, go to Siloam and wash. So I went and washed and received my sight. They said to him, where is he? He said, I do not know. They brought to the Pharisees the man who had formerly been blind. Now it was a Sabbath day when Jesus made the mud and opened his eyes. So the Pharisees again asked him how he had received his sight. And he said to them, he put mud on my eyes and I washed and I see. Some of the Pharisees said, this man is not from God for he does not keep the Sabbath. But others said, how can a man who is a sinner do such signs? And there was division among them. 
So they said again to the blind man, what do you say about him since he has opened your eyes? He said, he's a prophet. The Jews did not believe that he had been born, that he had been blind and had received his sight until they called his parents. The parents of the man who had received his sight and asked them, is this your son who you say was born blind? How then does he now see? His parents answered, we know that this is our son and that he has been born blind. But how he now sees, we do not know, nor do we know who opened his eyes. Ask him, he is of age, he will speak for himself. His parents said these things because they feared the Jews, for the Jews had already agreed that if anyone should confess Jesus to be the Christ, he was to be put out of the synagogue. Therefore the parents said, he is of age, ask him. So for the second time, they called the man who had been born blind and said to him, Give glory to God. We know that this man is a sinner. He answered, Whether he is a sinner, I do not know. One thing I do know, that though I was blind, now I see. They said to him, What did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? And he answered them, I have told you already, and you would not listen. Why do you want to hear it again? Do you also want to become his disciples? And they reviled him, saying, You are his disciple, but we are disciples of Moses. We know that God has spoken to Moses, but as for this man, we do not know where he comes from. The man answered, Why, this is an amazing thing. You do not know where he comes from, and yet he opened my eyes. We know that God does not listen to sinners, but if anyone is a worshiper of God and does his will, God listens to him. Never since the world began has it been heard that anyone opened the eyes of a man born blind. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. They answered him, you were born in utter sin. And would you teach us? And they cast him out. Jesus heard that they had cast him out. And having found him, he said, do you believe in the son of man? He answered, And who is he, sir, that I may believe in him? Jesus said to him, You have seen him, and it is he who is speaking to you. He said, Lord, I believe, and he worshipped him. Jesus said, For judgment I came into this world, that those who did not see may see, and those who see may become blind. Some of the Pharisees near him heard these things and said to him, Are we also blind? Jesus said to him, If you were blind, you would have no guilt. But now that you say, we see, your guilt remains. This is the word of the Lord. Well, as a Christian, we walk around in our day-to-day with lots of questions, right? We walk around wondering what it is we're supposed to do, why it is we're on this world. What's the right code of contact? What's the right answer? What should I do? But I think perhaps what this... What this passage is saying most of all for us is that sometimes we're getting lost out in the weeds, that we're totally untethered in our day-to-day Christian living. Because at the foundation of those questions, they are not springboarding from anything. They're actually springboarding from yourself. They're springboarding from pre-existing notions of what should be. And in this text, what's underscored, underscored, underscored is that every question Every action we have should be based out of these three words. Jesus healed me. Jesus healed me. 
That is the basis for this man, the blind man who was born blind and can now see. That is his honest existence in this story. And we get to see it in kind of all of its details. But when we know that at the core, the whole of his life is reformed by an encounter with Jesus, wherein at the result of his healing, where suddenly light rushes into his eyes in overpowering and startling ways in a, light that, in a life that didn't even understand it, that couldn't even comprehend it, is able to remember and live honestly from the fact that Jesus saved me. So, in this story, we will see that preeminently and above, Jesus is a healer. And he has saved you and I. And we will learn, there's three things I want to walk through, how this core concept, this springboard of existence, this mantra should be the honest basis of our identity. I want to say the most honest. I know that if it's honest, it's honest. But I think it helps us understand because there are so many competing pathways of what honest living is. That to say Jesus saved me is the most honest basis of our identity, of our character, of our personality, of what makes us us in all of those things. It is the most honest basis because it's true. It is the most honest presence of our identity and it is the most honest purpose of our identity. So I, I deliberately map those out in sort of a past, present, future for you. But write those three things down if you have a notebook. And we're going to walk through these. And we're going to explore how this new basis, this transformative basis we receive as a Christian, utterly transform us in completely natural and honest ways. Let's start with, he healed me as an honest basis of our identity. So we start a little bit pre-tape here. We start a little bit before we get to that moment with verse 1 where Jesus passed by and he saw a man blind from birth and his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Sort of a chicken and egg question. And Jesus answered, it was not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. Now, I want you to know that Jesus is not simply dodging the question because he'd rather not talk about that side of God. Okay? I think some of us live looking at this text and going, well, yeah, of course Jesus didn't want to explain evil and didn't want to explain hurt and brokenness. Because if God's an all-powerful God and he did that, why would Jesus want to talk about that? That's not really what Jesus' mission is. And right there, you've made Jesus into a dishonest or deceitful person. Jesus isn't being dishonest at all. But many of us think so because we have this sort of Stockholm Syndrome understanding of our God. What's Stockholm Syndrome? Stockholm Syndrome is a psychological response that occurs when a hostage or an abuse victim bond with their captor or abuser. See, some of us have placed God in the abuser role. That God has brought these evils and these hurts and all of these things down and he has made things this way. And then through Jesus, he frees us from that and protects us. And so it's like our captor is protecting us, right? It's a very abusive relationship that we actually hold with God. Sort of like a good cop, bad cop thing going on. And it breaks down our trust and it builds in us a deep well of bitterness. And some of us have been living out of the Stockholm Syndrome bitterness towards God for far too long. But the Bible's very clear. James writes 
In chapter 1, verse 13, he says, Let no one say when he is tempted, I'm being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is alert and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. There, James is looking and he's saying, sin, sin's the problem. Sin is our fall to the desire of self-love. Not because God set us up so that he can save us and look like a hero when he's actually a villain. That's not what's going on. He continues, he says, do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. Jesus is playing in a whole different paradigm. God has a whole different perspective on it. And in the perspective that God has, he is and has always been a redemptive God. And he's communicating that to us through Jesus. He's saying, I am redemptive. I am a healer. I brought you out of slavery, out of the slavery of sin we talked about last week. That always and ever, ever since healing has been needed, God has been there to heal. And the reason healing was needed was mankind's fall. And we all have it inborn in us. This text is also very clear. We have a man who was born blind from birth. And you can say, well, that's totally unrelatable, and we have to stop right there. We have to say, John is speaking to you and I in this text when he writes it. He's saying, we, we are the man born blind from sin. Sin is our blindness from birth. It is the thing that clouds and makes everything so confusing. And if we say, he healed me, and we look to Jesus as the chain breaker, then we can begin to break out of that blindness. That's what John's communicating here. So he's saying the basis of the very healing we search for cannot come from us. Isn't that what he's saying? And we know that. We know that a man born blind, if we look at this story just as normal readers reading a normal story, of course a man who is born blind, sort of some magical power, wouldn't be able to change his blindness into sight. It has to happen from the outside. In the same way you and I's healing has to come from the outside. We are incapable of healing ourselves from sin. Uh, I've been reading a book. It's it's, it's great, humorous allegory. Um, Not for the faint of heart. He's loose with his, his imagery. He's loose with his allegory. But it's by a guy named Robert Farrar Capon. And the title of the book is the man who met God in a bar. Okay? So that that should set some of the stage for you right there. And in this story, Jesus, who's named Jerry, uh, shows up in Cle- at an airport in Cleveland, Ohio. And, that's, and it's, it's set in 1983. So we're in 1980s you know, former, what we call the Rust Belt now. We're kind of in this whole Midwest space. And through the the process of the story, Jesus allegorically travels through most of, some of the high points of his gospel ministry in true 1980s form. And we find at this point, which is kind of allegorizing where Jesus is in front of Pilate, 
right before the crucifixion scene. But instead, Capon has Jesus on a daytime talk show host because he's just raised Lazarus from the dead. And there was a big stir and a big buzz and everybody wanted to get him on daytime TV. Just imagine Jesus on Dr. Phil. That's what's happening in this scene. And the talk show host is saying, Jesus is talking, they're talking about this Lazarus healing. Lazarus is Johnny in the story and he says, Jesus goes, why does it matter how? Why does it matter how? Why do you keep asking me? And he says, or I'm afraid, Jerry, I don't know exactly what you mean, the talk show host says. And he says, I said, why does how matter? I know I can raise the dead and I know I'm the only one who can. It's not something I'm planning to give courses in. But if you care about people, and I'm sure you do, Jerry, wouldn't it be wonderful if you could pass this power, sorry, I mean, this ability on? After all, even with your skill, you won't always be around, will you? No, Jerry says, I don't plan to be. Well, then why not share it? Look, I told you, it's not a teachable thing. It's unique to me. How I do it is irrelevant because nobody else is up to it anyway. What good would it do you to learn how Michelangelo sculpted the David? Even if you found out, it wouldn't do you any good. You're not Michelangelo. But I'd still love to know, and I bet every viewer out here would too. Isn't there anything you can tell us about how you actually raised Johnny from the dead? Well, okay, Jesus says suddenly with a bashful smile as if he's relenting. I take the old dead Johnny and I knock away everything that isn't the risen Johnny. And presto, you've got the risen Johnny. Simple. This is what Jesus is doing in this story. In chapter 9 with the man born blind. He's saying the same thing that Capon is, is extrapolating in the story. He's saying this is healing and by its very basis true healing must come from Jesus. And I think we have to now examine a little bit. To help us understand, maybe to help us not so much understand, oh, how does it work? We're not going into that. We know that Jesus is the only one capable of doing it. And in some way, it is inherently mysterious. It is inherently in his power. But we can begin to apply this to our life and begin to structure our narrative. So that in the basis of our life, we can say honestly, he saved me. And it may require rewriting some of your story, which you have written differently out of a sin darkness, which you have come up with ways and you have studied so that you might heal yourself out of it. And you may need to attribute different causes to different things. And you may need to attribute those healings to Jesus. In this story, Jesus comes and he spits on the ground and he makes mud with saliva. Now, is there anything sort of potion-y about this? It says he anointed the man with mud. Is this some sort of divine potion that Jesus is making? He just needs mud and saliva and he had to get it, but it just happened to be right here? No. I think that what's, what this is showing is that there is a sense in which Jesus' healing happens in the most unorthodox and ordinary ways in all of our lives. But the one true component is that it takes the hymnness. It takes his presence saturating that event. That we, it must reconcile. That healing event must reconcile with the goodness and glory of Jesus for us to name it that way. So Jesus reaches down, what? Right where this man is. And in his presence, in the presence of Jesus, with what is around him, he is healed in an ordinary weirdness. 
An ordinary weirdness is what the life of a Christian is. We don't live any particularly extraordinary, crazy lives. When we say Jesus saved me, we don't have necessarily crazy, rapturous stories and visions of angels and, and dreams. It may simply be that I read the Bible at work one day and I finally said, it's because Jesus saves me, I finally understand. It might be because somebody sat down with us and showed us the love of Jesus in an ordinary weirdness, proclaiming and crediting him that we said, oh, it's not my friends, it's actually Jesus. Epiphany. It might be through these actions for justice in different ways, for the ordinary weirdness of people doing things that makes no sense for their own benefit, for it to stick out like a sore thumb and to us to go. The only way that adds up, I see it now. It's because Jesus saved them, and Jesus is saving me. At dinner time, we read a book right now called Common Prayer, a book for ordinary radicals. We read a page every night by date. I uh, just wanted to add some structure for the kids. And the thing that strikes me over and over again is there's a small snippet of a life of a Christian in history in it. And it just strikes me how ordinarily extraordinary each person is, how their Unique life and their unique place in history, plus Jesus, creates the extraordinary healing of Jesus in their own lives and begins to allow them to bring fertile, make fertile ground for the extraordinary healing by Jesus in other people's lives. And so here we see that the healing by Jesus is ordinary. We also see it's participatory. It happens with your consent. Right? He, he says, go and be healed, but he actually gives the man a will to do it. In all of the healing stories, you can see that there is a participatory consent, that there is a redemption of the will. The very will who went for the apple, the very desire for self, has to shift in response to Jesus to complete, to receive the gift of his healing. That is a redemption of the will. That is an unchanging and forever rooted action that we make in response to Jesus. We are healed. But yet we all know that we are also healing. And we see in the story of this man that he, in his participatory consent, goes through kind of hell. Until he gets to a point in verse 38 where he says these words, Lord, I believe. And he worships him. So there is this sort of continuum here and we see that this man's heart has been healed. And in this continuum and through these trials, Lord, I believe, becomes almost like a seal over his belief. A voice to what was in there and bubbling up and being computed and figured out is spoken and said. So I want us to, to with that framework of healing, to maybe set our own life in that for a second to say, where... Can I start to understand? Can I write a story? Can I see that? Can I start to name it in my life? What Jesus is doing in your life when he enters your life and appears to you, this might help in your narrative building, is he is showing you, like he showed this man, he says, there is mud on your eyes. So he said, that man, that didn't change anything. He goes, why are you putting something? I mean, of course he can feel it, but he's still just as blind. But what is it showing? It's an illustration also to the disciples and all who would read this story after him. To the millions and millions of Christians. 
that you need to show it how it truly is. An honest appreciation for your blindness says there is dirt on my eyes that Jesus removes. That I am blind with the dirt of this world. The very dirt man was made out of into the flesh blinds me. The self-love. And that's what Jesus is showing in this beautiful poetic imagery. And there's urgency. He says, we've got to get out there. I'm in the, as long as I'm in the world, I'm the light of the world. I, I think Jesus is just going, look, there's gospel to be written. I'm incarnational. I exist in time and space. Let's get out and do healing. It's important that people see these events so that they can understand that I am the healer. I think maybe our healing, for us to be able to say he healed us, it's important for me to give sort of an illustration here. Because you might be saying, well, John, if he really healed us, why, is it, why are you still talking about this ongoing healing? Why are you still talking about this progression and trials that everybody goes through? Aren't I healed? Think of it a little bit like this. Your life as a Christian who has been healed by Jesus through his death on the cross and resurrection into, into new life. And for you to say, I believe, for you to say he healed me is like heart surgery. Okay? The doctor has come in. You had, a, you had an unsolvable heart problem. Nobody but the doctor, the heart surgeon, can come in and fix that. Surgery goes well. He's fixed your heart. But, as is commonly the case with many people that go through heart surgery, when you come out of that surgery, you have a very strict diet. You have lifestyle changes. There are now bumpers put up on your life. There are some limitations. Because you've been healed. They don't change that your heart has been fixed. But not following them to a certain degree is not just harmful to you at some point. Not following them actually becomes a denial of your doctor's sort of chops, his gifts, his talents, his intentions. Because you can't fix your heart. And so when we're saved by Jesus, what we are saying is he has done heart surgery on me. He has forever healed that heart condition that I can't heal. And then he's reframed my life. And he's going to send me through a healing process of this life. And it's, and it's almost in a way, it's a, it's a maintenance procedure. It's a grace. It's a mercy. It's saying, we as humans, we need to know some boundaries with the things of God that we can understand and follow. Because they will keep us constantly, what? Looking to the healing from Jesus as the basis of my identity. That's what it's saying. So what does it mean if the honest basis of our identity is that we are healed from blindness and yet still healing? What does that mean for me? It means that what you believe healed or heals you matters. You worship the thing that you think heals you. An honest basis, saying that I honestly can say with all of my integrity that I actually think Jesus healed me means that you must attribute the healing of your life, the things you look to view in life, you say, those healed me, those were good, to Christ. They must reconcile with Christ in order for you to worship Christ like this man does in verse 3. Or you'll worship whatever you think healed you. What has healed you? What has made you have value and worth? What raises your esteem? If it's outside Christ and his kingdom, you are living out of and for that thing. To be healed by Christ is to honestly say, he healed me.
Moral behavior, we can see when we say he healed me, is honoring and not earning. Just heart, heart surgeon analogy again. Am I earning, am I repairing my own heart by following that diet and those bumpers that are put up in my life? Am I, am I earning it? No, I'm honoring it. To say Jesus saved me is honoring him. It's honoring someone who did something that I could never do. Rather than trying to get into a place where I can do it to myself. And this is a fundamental difference between a Christian and a person in culture that is pursuing self-help. That we are not in charge of our own program and our own progress. That Jesus is in charge of your program. Jesus is in charge of your progress. So if you're impatient, all Jesus can really say is, wait. I promise you it's coming. The third thing that a basis in the fact that he healed me does is it reminds us, it reminds us with this progressive healing that our failures are, are more manageable. Our failures are more manageable. If we are progressively healing, but the main healing has been done, if we are recovering, so to speak, then there is, there is, there is a sense in which our failures aren't so hard to deal with. If you base your identity, your personality, your self-worth on the fact that you are healed by Jesus right now, you won't be so frustrated by your failures. You can admit, admit mistakes and receive correction. The healing is now what is a mistake. It's to know, sorry, what is a mistake. And you do not have to feel immense life-threatening shame. Because you know to live is to be healing. Just two examples of that. Uh, Paul talks about having a thorn in his side. Right? He talks about this. He says, I have it. In fact, he says in points, I do not what I want to do. Right? He says, I, 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 I know that I shouldn't do this thing, and yet I still do it. He's in the healing process. Good thing is, he's been healed. He knows what it is. He knows what it is he ought to do. But he still does it. He says, I've been given a thorn. But then he says, I boast not in myself, but in my weakness. So actually, this humble admitting that I am still in a healing process gives us an opportunity to boast and point towards Christ, just as this man's blindness allows the glory of Jesus to be revealed. Do we treat our failures that way, though? I mean, honestly. Do I treat my failures that way? That if I said, Jesus saved me, then I could admit a fault to you and I could say, gosh, yeah, I know how it's supposed to be and I blew it. Man, well, gosh, I am so thankful that Jesus Christ heals me. That is so humbling to me. Look at the difference in tone and temperament versus the self-hate that happens out of that failure. If you believe that you heal yourself, that you're in control of your own destiny. Oh, it's just me. I'm, just, I'm, just, I'm so bad. Right? Or if you don't honor the one who healed you and you say, ah, who cares? It's neither of those things. The failure is reframed as a process of recovery. 
And that, in that, it reminds us that we are no better than anyone else. Chew on that. That your washing and your moral behavior doesn't help you see any better than the immoral person so long as you both know Jesus. You both see the same truth. You're not any better because of your behaviors. As long as you can both admit in honesty that you see the same truth and that you see the gravity of it, then how your life works out and the different factors that may result in different thorns I mean, come on, some of us are going to have lives where there's going to be rashes of sin that happen because of horrible things outside of our control. And grace and mercy is to look at that and say, I am no better than them. Do we abide and treat the same truth? Then we are on the same team and we can actually collaborate in a pursuit of holiness. As teammates, without envy, it's just mind-blowing. Okay, second thing. These points get shorter, by the way, I promise. Okay, the second thing, now that we've established that basis, is that that I am healed, that he healed me, is the honest presence of my identity. There's a 1983 film called The Right Stuff. I don't know if any of you guys have ever seen it. Um, Ed Harris, great, great film. And in The Right Stuff, uh, there's a group of test pilots And it's set in 1947 at the beginning. And these test pilots are trying to break the sound barrier. So these are like the Wild West, you know, test pilot astronauts. They're out in the high desert of California. And just part of the script, they're talking about the the sort of title scene, the title idea. And this guy's talking, walking up to meet all of these guys. And they say, we're meeting the liaison officer. They're expecting us. They, who's they? The best test pilots in the world. Here, they got some kind of brotherhood. They think they got the right stuff. And he goes... What stuff? Heroism, bravery? Heroism and bravery are part of it, but seems to be more to it. What do they say it means? They don't say anything. They don't talk about it. They don't talk about it to outsiders or to each other. In this sort of like John Wayne-esque moment, what's being explored is this mysterious sense that there are some men here who are capable of doing the incapable which other pilots have died doing to break the sandbar. Why? Because they've got the right stuff. And I think what John is writing in this gospel is he's saying, I know, I'm showing you what the right stuff is for the Christian. Yeah, heroism, bravery, that's part of it. But what it really is, is that a Christian who says he healed me has got the right stuff. And in that honest presence of his identity, we see it. We see sometimes bravery, sometimes heroism, sometimes incredible feats of wisdom and discernment because he is honestly living out of his healing by Jesus. And it gives him in the moment, in each and every moment, a different sense of the right stuff that I can't quite put my finger on. It's a presence, it's, a, it's an honesty that's otherworldly. And we see it in this man, this kind of a bumbling story here. The neighbors and those who had seen him, verse 8, as a beggar were saying, is this not the man who used to sit and beg? Some said, it is he. Others said, no, but he is like him. He kept saying, I am the man. Just pure, honest, stating a fact. I'm the man. So they said to him, then how were your eyes open? And he answered, the man called Jesus made mud and anointed my eyes and said to me, go to Siloam and wash. So I went and I washed and I received my sight. It's just the most honest, clear delivery of what happened. It's absolutely incredible. 
why it doesn't look so incredible on paper, but if you think about all the forces that are in play, we read, as we read this text, we will explore and we will see how this honest presence is up against a lot. And I think we as Christians in the church, in Portland especially, but perhaps anywhere in the nation right now, can understand that to have an honest presence to truly and honestly live out of it in this sort of plain way is incredibly brave and strong. But it's not brave and strong because this particular guy happens to be brave and strong. It's because he's made his basins and his presence is practiced out of the same core truth. There's integrity throughout all of it, past, present, and future. And the substance of his life foundationally is authenticity, that he's comfortable with what he has experienced and talked about to some people. So he will talk about to everybody in the same way. There is a huge amount of hypocrisy in each of our individual faiths, where the things we may profess to be true to other Christians, as soon as we encounter a sense of fear or a sense of desire for the self to be a certain way, we will change the expression of the honest truth into something that is dishonest. Uh, uh, a, a, a pastor who mentors pastors that I meet with once a month, Bill Clem, works at Western Seminary, says if you need something from someone to be okay, you're not okay. It just like cut me like a knife. If you need something from someone to be okay, you're not okay. This man here does not need something from anyone to be okay. Because he is okay. Because he has it from Jesus. And that is the right stuff. Ah, it just breaks me apart, you guys. That's the right stuff. How many conversations do you go in where you say, if they don't this, I don't know what I'm going to do with myself. I'm going to get so angry. No, you can't get angry. That's not rooting yourself in the way of Jesus. So if you root yourself in the way of Jesus, you act in an honest presence and come what may, God is in control. Gosh. That's the right stuff. Oh my gosh, it's profound, the honesty. It's profound what this man is practicing in his seeming simplicity. Look at the beauty of his honesty. If we go on in verse 12. They said to him, where is he? And he said, I don't know. He doesn't have to have all of the answers. He can act out of his authentic self and say what he knows and say, I don't know, to other stuff. And then look how life goes for him. I know it's not exactly shiny to look at. They brought to the Pharisees the man who had been formerly blind. Now it was a Sabbath day when Jesus made the money to open his eyes. So the Pharisees again asked him how he had received his sight. And he said to them, he put mud on my eyes and I washed and I see. Same simple honesty. Hasn't changed his story. Some of the Pharisees said, this man is not from God. They're talking about Jesus for he does not keep the Sabbath. But others said, how can a man who is a sinner do such signs? And here we see that the honest presence of a Christian, though it may look like nothing is happening in the face of evil, 
in the face of those infected by sin and worshiping in its altar, that to live in honest presence actually divides like a sword. And in that courageous, brave act of honesty, the Pharisees themselves are coming divided. Because some of them are honest people. There is some core in them that desires to have that honest integrity. And they say, you know what? It kind of actually makes sense. How could a man who has a sin do miracles? That, that doesn't make sense. It doesn't add up. But then what we see is that fear takes over. Fear takes over. And what we can then say is that fear is a lie. That believing and acting out of fear is following a lie. It is not an honest expression of the presence of somebody who says, He has completely healed me. That if you are acting and following your fears, you are lying. You are not being an honest expression and presence of that. And we see how it unravels, confuses, and destroys people who are on the edge of hope when they believe and fall prey and become obedient to fear. Fear is the killer of honesty. Because what happens? What we find out is that the Jews have actually galvanized the Jewish authorities after this divisive moment. They take care of business. The liars, the sinners who call themselves the disciples of Moses and not Jesus, they get in there and they pull rank and they bully those other Pharisees into submission so that there is no division. They shut it down because what they use fear to do it. And so when we become people that are afraid, known by our fear, controlled by our fear, we are beginning to go away from the bumpers of the recovery plan that the heart surgeon has given us out into somewhere where we are not honoring him and we are listening to another healer that we think will heal us. Look at how insidious it is. Verse 18, the Jews did not believe that he had been blind and had received his sight until they called the parents of the man who had received his sight and asked them, is this your son who you say was born blind? How does he now see? Even though this man we find out is of age, they go to the parents because they just want to get as much evidence to reinforce what they already think. So they go to other liars to reinforce their lies. His parents answered, we do know that this is our son and he was born blind. So there's some kernel of truth there, but look how it gets distorted. But how he now sees, we do not know, nor do we know who opened his eyes. Ask him, he is of age, he will speak to himself. Now notice, you might say, well, they, they might not have known. The parents, upon hearing that the man is healed, they've already talked to their son and found out he's healed, decided not to go to Jesus, the healer. That's implicit in the text. You know that they decided not to go to him or they would be lying about who he is. So it's either one of two things. They willfully decided not to go to him out of fear, we find out, or they decided to lie about it. Because verse 22, John makes it so clear that fear is in control of his parents. He says, his parents said these things because they feared the Jews. For the Jews had already agreed that if anyone should confess Jesus to be the Christ, he would be put out of the synagogue. 
Therefore, his parents said, he is of age, ask him. So there is a, there is a fear that bullies and shuts down. There is a fear of being bullied that shuts down the truth. Those both happen with the Pharisees. There is a fear of being removed from status, from social, from relationships, from everything you've built in your life. Think of all the friend groups these parents wouldn't be a part of if they're cast out of the synagogue. Think about how their life would be in utter ruins. And so how do they act? They act out of cowardice because of fear. And what they actually do is that they cling to lies. Rather than Jesus being the healer, they say Jesus is the sinner. So every commandment that we break, you think of the Ten Commandments, every one is a form of lying. Every single one. It's actually profoundly simple sometimes, the way that the gospel works when you begin to tie it together and look at it. How fear is a lie and love is the truth. Because there's a greater perspective than your and I's life and well-being. That there's an eternal essence to our soul. And that we need to be trusting people who root ourselves and then act out of a sense that Jesus is the healer. Makoto Fujimura is an artist and he talked to a group of high schoolers and he described it like this. And, talking, and he's talking just about how you view art. He says there's a, such a thing called Understanding, right? We know about understanding. Understanding says, I know what that is. I, I, I get it. He says, actually, a lot of times when we use that term understanding, what we're actually saying is I'm overstanding it. I'm saying, I know that. We know. We see. I get it. He says, understanding is actually putting yourself under it, letting it inform you, letting it mold you. When we seek to understand Jesus, we are setting ourselves on our knees before him. We're saying, mold me, change me, transform me. That is the massive difference in this story. If you could boil down this story, what Jesus is saying is you need to understand me, not overstand me. You need to be under and learning from and changed and transformed by me, not telling me what I need to be or how I need to act. And it is a transformative, lifelong process where you will grow in honesty if you are honest about that process. If you're just honest about it. But it means that you have to attach yourself to the permanence and the eternality of Jesus as utter and complete truth of your life. That's what the peace of the Bible is. That's what peace means. Not that things won't hurt. That we know that we are okay. Because if we don't know that we're okay, and if we need something from somebody else to be okay, we're not okay. Last thing. We are healed by Jesus is the honest mission and purpose. So as we go on through this story, we see that it continues in sort of chaos and turmoil that the story thickens. Verse 24, for the second time they called the man who had been blind and said to him, give glory to God. We know that this man is a sinner. So what they're really saying is don't give glory to God. They're saying, give glory to our God that says, this guy is a sinner. And he answered saying, whether he is a sinner, I do not know. One thing I do know, that though I was blind, now I see. Look at the simple honesty. I do know this. I know that I was blind and now I see. And then he works out from what he knows that Jesus healed him. He works out how Jesus is the divine Lord and Savior. Look at his verbal processing. 
They said to him, what did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? And he answered them, I have told you already and you would not listen. Why do you want to hear it again? Do you also want to become his disciples? They reviled him saying, you are his disciple, but we are disciples of Moses. We know that God has spoken to Moses, but to this man, we do not know where he comes from. The man answered, why this is an amazing thing. Here you can see the gears turning. You do not know where he comes from, and yet he opened my eyes. We know that God does not listen to sinners, which is something the Pharisees would have completely believed, but that if anyone is a worshiper of God and does his will, God listens to him. Meaning he is not a sinner. He does not have a habit of sinning. Never since the world began has it been heard that anyone opened the eyes of a man born blind. He's true. It's never happened in the whole Testament. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. You see him connecting the dots. And they answered him, you were born in utter sin and you would teach him. They cast him out. Again, they use a fear tactic. But it doesn't work on him. They can cast out his body, but they don't cast him out. The joke's on them. Jesus heard them that they had cast him out and having found him, he said, do you believe in the Son of Man? And he answered, who is he, sir, that I may believe in him? See, even here, he's processing out. He's figuring out, he's going to Jesus and saying, who is this new term? This new person? Who is this prophet? Who do you say is? Because I trust you because you healed me. And Jesus said, you have seen him and he is the one speaking to you. So he said, Lord, I believe. And he worshiped him. So you see how it's all connected, that actually our purpose and our mission is based on these things, the past and the present understanding. That there is this form of sort of natural discipleship that grows out of just an honest living of that truth. Philippians 1.6 says you don't, have to, you don't have to have a grand purpose. If you have a purpose to live honestly, you can then live confidently. Paul writes, being confident of this, that he began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. We have talked in this church over and over about process, not product-minded living. That this natural, honest discipleship is a true process living. There's still trials. There's still growth. There's still healing. So, I was trying to think of just an equational way to put this that might help some of our minds that are the more rationalistic minds. And I thought about this, and this might help you. <clears throat> okay, We all have pasts. Those are kind of locked away. We can't do anything about them. Usually they're full of regrets, sometimes full of some nostalgic memories. We have a past that's locked away. Okay, Then we have the present moment. And then that equals, in any given situation, our past informs heavily our present moment, who we are, how we're perceived, what actions we are probably going to do out of habitual muscle memory, so to speak. That equals our controllable future. Notice I don't say it equals the future. It equals our controllable future. Okay? When the past and the present don't add up, it tends to equal fear. Because in our controllable future, we have a big X. We have just a big uh, unknown in our controllable future. And so when the past and everything that I've got here and the present moment and the decision don't add up, it equals fear. So we live in a tremendous amount of fear because none of us have pasts and identities that we really feel like we can live up in the present. And if we live honestly as an expression out of that, we fear that the controllable future won't be desirable. That's fear. And so what do we do? We act in the present in a way that is dishonest. What do I mean by that? 
Rather than following the bumpers of the recovery plan, we step out of the bounds. We break the commandments. We lie in some action. And it's rooted in fear of something that we know. He healed me. He has healed me. He has healed the future. He has healed it. Jesus is in control. So if the controllable future I see isn't the one I want, but I know that in the present I'm acting within the bumpers and the limitations and the truth that he has given me in my life, I can have peace and do the thing. That's the right stuff. And that's what makes us ordinary radicals. Because we have a firm belief when we were talking about last week, and Elijah said the role of the church hasn't changed. The true church, its role has not changed. I struggled. I said, yeah, you're right. I know you're right. I know the role of the church hasn't changed. But I want to specifically think about it. I want to specifically ask what is the present moment that I'm supposed to do. But I have to be careful that I'm not saying what is the thing I need to do so I get what needs to be what I think the true church should look like, and I think the true witness should look like, that I am not going outside the boundaries. We are not called to heal others of ourself. Jesus heals. We are called to be healed ones. Now, if we are okay and we go into somebody that's not okay and they can't make us not okay, we actually are a healing presence. So there is healing work and fertile ground that we can make, but you must remember you are not the healer. That healing comes from the presence of God, not men. And we see in this man something so wild. We see it in the Samaritan woman in a similar way when she runs out and tells everybody. In the core, honest basis, they believe they proclaim Jesus as king and they worship him in honesty with their core being. That they move from a place of just saying he's prophet to some place in their life in the progression of healing where they can honestly say with their whole being, he is king. And what this means then for our purpose is not something wild and grand. I'm not giving you the keys to what you haven't had in your life the whole time. It means over and over over and over, that, the right stuff, over and over again. Steadfast endurance is the key to living in 2021, which means going back to the core of Jesus' healer, embracing that he has healed you, asking him for your recovery plan, and working that out, come what may, because he is in control of the future, and making sure that you are living in the totality of the honest integrity. That's what it means. Uh, right after this, Heather's going to sing a song, Not I, but Christ in me, but through Christ in me. Listen to this song. It's an expression of honest living. It is the expression of the blind man. And ask, is that my expression with my life? How, Jesus, could you help me have that expression? Let's pray. God, I pray that you move our hearts. I pray that you break down and help us see the false healers we've credited to, whether they're ourselves or thing out of us that are not of you.
God, help us root our very being in you to give us peace in the face of fear, to call fear what it is, a lie, and to embrace your word, trust in your power, and worship at your feet. In Jesus' name, amen.